Just a quick note before we begin. This episode features adult language and descriptions of violence that you'd expect to hear in a podcast about the mafia. If you have kids in the room, you may want to listen with headphones. November 23rd, 2003. Springfield, Massachusetts. It was a Sunday night. A police detective named Maurice Kearney heard the dispatcher's voice over the police radio. The call just came in that we had a shooting down on Winthrop Street. We need a fast ambulance, you know, because the guy was in tough shape. A homicide detective named Thomas Maliti also heard the dispatch. Al Bruno just took about eight to the body at the Italian club on Winthrop Street. I'm like, oh, Jesus. Kearney and Maliti raced over. Al Bruno was still there on the ground. He wasn't moving or anything. Another officer rolled Bruno onto his back and started doing chest compressions to try to revive him. He made eye contact with me, looked right at me, and he just shook his head like, ah, he's dead, he's gone. They took his shirt off. You could see the holes in his chest. Blood was coming out of him from just about everywhere. He just was laying back flat, uh, and he still had the cigar in his hand. The dead man holding the cigar was no ordinary murder victim. He was the boss of Springfield's Italian mafia, Adolfo Bruno, known as Big Al. Just two years prior, Big Al was basking in the glow of becoming Springfield's top-ranking mobster. Now he was lying dead on the pavement in a parking lot. Bruno's shooting bewildered the police. Mob hits were rare in Springfield, and for a boss to be gunned down, that hadn't happened in nearly 70 years since Prohibition. So what made Al Bruno a target? And how could law enforcement turn his brazen murder into an opportunity to take down the whole city's organized crime family? An opportunity for the most formidable federal prosecutor's office in the country, my former office, the Southern District of New York. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, This is season two of Up Against the Mob, the Springfield Crew. I'm Ellie Honig. For eight years, I was a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. When I took on this case, it brought me deep into Springfield's criminal underworld, into all of its lies, violence, and lust for power. And we had to use every trick in the book to convince mobsters to break their lifelong blood bonds of loyalty. In the end, Springfield and the Mafia would never be the same. Episode 1. It's Shangri-La up there. Support for this episode comes from eBay. Whether it's a holy grail pair of sneakers, head-turning handbags, or one genuine wardrobe staple, if you're always on the hunt for that one wardrobe staple you just gotta have, eBay gets it. Nothing's more important than the real deal. When you shop on eBay, all you have to do is look out for that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be verified authentic through a detailed inspection. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now, on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. 
Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. There's only one guy who can take us inside Al Bruno's story. He was there for Bruno's rise and fall, and in fact, he played a pivotal role in both. That's Anthony Arellata. I got to know Al Bruno from growing up, being a young kid. Bruno dressed good, he smoked cigars, you know, he was just a, a flashy type of a gangster. Anthony Arellata grew up in Springfield in the 1970s. The place had seen better days. Like many manufacturing cities in the Northeast, a lot of factories closed and many people lost their jobs but not Aralata's family. My father was a hard worker. He was like a, a mini Costco before Costco. This was going back in the 70s. and Did he have a store? Yeah, he had a fruit and produce store. Where was it? It was on uh, Bay Street in Springfield. You had honeydew melons, pineapples, oranges, lemons. It goes on apples, pears, grapes, and bananas. And then especially when the wine grapes came in, forget about it. As soon as you opened the doors, they were fighting to get in at 8 o'clock in the morning. And this is how the young Aralata first came to know Al Bruno. Even mobsters need produce. Bruno was always at the store. He took a liking to me where he would notice me. And he used to always tip me, too. When we were at the store, he'd always give me a $20 bill and bring the stuff into his car. And when Bruno was at the store, Aralata's father treated him like a king. When they came in, they got the red carpet treatment. You know, my father would make them up boxes. But when the mob wasn't around... Aralata's father would act a bit differently. My father would be like, stay away. These guys aren't going to last. And, you know, look at they get caught. They go to jail. To Aralata, that didn't make sense. You guys all say that they're not good people. But when they come in, you fawn over them like royalty. Aralata thinks his father may have been a little jealous. There was kind of like, not a resentment, but a little bitterness because he worked hard for his money. And these guys didn't work hard, made lots of money. But Aralata's father may have been right to warn his son. Because even in the 80s, when Aralata should have been working hard, stocking fruit at his father's store, he was focused on something else. I gambled at a young age, too, and I bet the board. You know, I was like 15 years old and betting like 20 games a night. Aralata loved gambling on sports, and he hated when a game didn't go his way. One day, while he was stocking cantaloupe at his father's store, Aralata learned that he'd lost a huge bet. I got mad, and I had a cantaloupe in my hand. So when I was going back to put the cantaloupe back to where the cantaloupes go, I flung it. I threw it really hard. There was a customer on the other side, and the cantaloupe went over the backstop, and it hit this older man right in the belly. He had a fat belly, and went boom. And his belly started shaking. I said, oh. But the man didn't accept an apology. He marched straight over to Aralata's grandmother, who was working as a cashier. He says, that little kid just hit me with the cantaloupe. She goes, so what are you looking to do? Put a claim in? What are you looking to sue? There's, there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah, like she said, there's nothing wrong with you. And you know how the customer's always right? Not in that store. Aralata's mischief didn't end at the cantaloupe crate. 
I loved getting in trouble. I loved causing trouble. Then I loved the street stuff. But Arellano's father didn't love it so much. He says, you're not hanging around with these fucking bums. You, he goes, you got to work in life. Arellano didn't want the workday grind like his father. He wanted easy money. So when he was in high school, he stopped stocking spinach at his father's store and began selling a different type of green. I started selling marijuana. I'd built up a bankroll of, like, say, 200000 The money was piling up. But like Arellano's father warned, easy money comes with risk. In 1990, when Arellano was 21 years old, he was driving around with some friends, and he got into an argument with a group of people in another car. And we had a gun in the car, and we're being stupid, and we shoot the gun out of the car or whatever. At the person or just up in the air? Up in the air. It was, like, towards their direction or whatever. Then Arellano put the gun down and drove away. But it wasn't long before he noticed somebody was following. I noticed the cops were following me. And when, they, when I pulled into the parking place, the uh, cops got out and they had us at gunpoint, get on the ground, and they would search the car. They found the gun. It was a 9mm. It was my gun. I carried it. He was arrested and eventually sentenced to a year in state prison. But if Arellano's father had any hope that prison would straighten his son out, he would have been sorely disappointed. How did you do in prison? Was it hard for you? Were you fine? It was the best thing that happened to me. We had a lot of fun. We're young kids. How can you not? You know what I mean? So we're playing sports. We're working out. I was betting games on the streets. You know, I was betting 2,000 a game while I was in prison. Could you watch the games? Yeah, yeah. We had TVs. We ate dinners every night. We were eating pizzas, Chinese food. If you wanted booze, it was in there. This sounds like a college dorm or like a, like yeah, a summer camp. Yeah, that's what it was like. In 1991, the fun came to an end. After serving a year, Arellano was released. When he got home, an unexpected visitor stopped by. Bruno came to my house and, you know, he came up, he hugged me, he kissed me, he said, what are you doing? Al Bruno knew Arellano had been to prison. He wanted to talk about the gun. That's when he said, uh, you were carrying a gun. What do you need a gun for? Blah, blah, blah. They talked about what Arellano wanted to do with his life. Did he want to keep working at his dad's produce store? Then finally, Bruno revealed the real reason he came to visit. That's when he says, why don't you come work for me and be with me? Bruno wanted Arellano to become a member of his crew and an associate of the Springfield Mafia. Arellano was honored. I reacted good with it. I thought it was like a good feeling for me. When Bruno recruited Arellano, Big Al wasn't yet the boss of the Springfield Mafia, but he was a high-ranking member and a made man. Being made means you took an oath of silence called Omerta, and you're an official member of the secret mafia society, La Cosa Nostra. So Bruno began showing his young protege the ropes. Arellano quickly learned that the Springfield Mafia, or the Springfield Crew, as some call it, had between 6 to 12 made guys. Each made guy was in charge of a group of associates who helped them run their rackets and make money. The Springfield mob wasn't as large as New York or Chicago, but considering the city's size, it had an enormous presence. And of course, Bruno taught his new recruit how the mob's rackets worked. He's involved in everything, everything. You name it, 
loan sharking business, a numbers business. That's another one, a numbers business. Kind of like a weekly lottery, but illegal. And then the sports gamble. We started our uh, sports gambling business. That was what Bruno was known for. Back then, sports gambling was illegal in Massachusetts. And for the mob, illegal activities make great business opportunities. Thousands of bettors in our area, money coming in to 40 different bookmakers. You're talking multi-million. And those rackets were just the beginning. Do you have any sense, even a rough estimate, of just how much money, just total revenue, the Springfield rackets were bringing in? If I broke it down, your people's heads would spin. Was this stuff bringing in more than a million dollars a week, all told? Oh, no question about it. Of course, the mob doesn't keep detailed financial records. But in my experience prosecuting the mob, these rackets are huge moneymakers. Bruno also taught Aralata that there's more to being a great mobster than just making money. You also have to know how to keep people in line. Bruno was a master at that skill. One time, a barber made a joke that Bruno found insulting. The actual joke is a bit convoluted, so we won't get into it. But just know that Bruno was not pleased when he found out about that joke. So one day, Bruno pulled Aralata aside. Bruno says, take a ride with me. We go into the uh, barbershop, and I don't have no idea what's going to happen. They drove over to the barbershop. Bruno walked in. Then he spotted the man he was looking for. Boom, Bruno starts breaking his face apart. Boom, punching him, punching him. Now, this was during the daytime. You know, busted his nose up, his lips bleeding, knocked him down, fucking, on, you know, knocked out. The beating was so bad, another barber in the shop begged Bruno to stop. This guy's like, please, Bruno, please, and no hit him no more, please. He's had enough of Bruno, please. The beatings, keeping people in line, the rackets, the money-making. That's how Al Bruno did business. And he was good at it. So good, in fact, that over time, his talents would earn him the prize that he wanted his entire life, which turned out to be the beginning of the end for Al Bruno. Support for this episode comes from eBay. Whether it's a holy grail pair of sneakers, head-turning handbags, or one genuine wardrobe staple. If you're always on the hunt for that one wardrobe staple you just gotta have, eBay gets it. Nothing's more important than the real deal. When you shop on eBay, all you have to do is look out for that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be verified authentic through a detailed inspection. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we go any further, I should explain something. 
The Springfield crew is not independent. They're a faction of one of New York's five mafia families, the Genovese crime family, maybe the most famous of all. You've heard of The Godfather? Marlon Brando's character was inspired by a real-life Genovese crime boss. Typically, the Genovese family doesn't behave like your average mobsters. They're not flashy and flamboyant like John Gotti. Instead, they're secretive. They don't like attention. As a former organized crime prosecutor, I can tell you firsthand that the Genovese family is way more elusive and smarter than your typical gangsters. In our office, we half-jokingly call them the Ivy League of the Mafia. The Springfield crew is an outpost of the Genovese family. If a big decision is made in Springfield, the New York bosses have the final say, including choosing the leader of the Springfield crew. And in 2001, nearly a decade after Bruno recruited Aralata, they were about to select a new one. The current Springfield boss was getting up there in years, and the Genovese family felt it was his time to retire and make way for new leadership. They picked Al Bruno. For Big Al, it was a dream come true. His whole life, he's been telling people he's going to be the boss. That's what he wanted. He wanted to be the guy. The official handoff occurred during a party at a restaurant that Bruno owned. A couple of top-ranking Genovese bosses drove up from New York to officiate the event. Towards the end of the party, one New York boss gathered all the members of the Springfield crew around Bruno, and he told them, from now on, you guys listen to Bruno. He's the boss now. And you could just tell Bruno was, like, shaken. You're not nervous shaking, but, like, he was trembling of excitement. You know, you could just see it. Like, he was so happy. It was probably the best day of his life. Then, one by one, each member of the Springfield crew walked over to Bruno, took his hand, and kissed it like he was a newly crowned emperor. He was, like, high on the best drug you could actually get your hands on. I mean, he was just like Superman. The remarkable thing about Bruno's reign as boss, at least in the beginning, is how unremarkable it was. It wasn't like the Wild Wild West or anything in the Springfield area. That's Thomas Murphy. We all just called him Murph. He was a Massachusetts state police officer who worked on the organized crime task force. It was just kind of a routine, orderly system of these made guys running their rackets. And Bruno's style of being boss? It was a little different than what you'd expect from someone in the highly secretive Genovese crime family. He didn't hide from the police. In fact, he joked around with them. I remember one day Bruno pulls up next to me at a traffic light. He, you know, he puts away. I'm like, hey, Al, how's it going? And he goes, oh, Murph, he goes, you, got, you, got, you guys got to leave them, you know, the bookmakers alone. He goes, you got, you got to get them drug dealers. For the gangsters, these were the good old days of organized crime in Springfield, especially around Christmas. Christmas time with these guys was always like, you could set your watch by it. There was a lot of exchanges of monies. And it's all this, you're a made guy. I'm going to give you some tribute or something. And Al Bruno had a unique way of sending his Christmas tribute down to New York. What he would do is he would get a uh, load of van up and just load it with all kinds of gifts, like boxes of Corando cold cuts, like supersides and prosciuttos and all that. And, of course, something to drink. Homemade wines, cases and cases of that, bottles of, you know, 
good wine, Opus, and just high-end Cabernets and Italian um, Barolos and Cognac. All in a big truck, loaded up. Oh, in a van, a huge cargo van. Once all the cold cuts, prosciutto, and wine were loaded onto the truck, Bruno asked Arellata to drive down to the Bronx to deliver the gifts. It was on these regular trips to New York that Arellata started meeting some of the power players in the Genovese family. One was a guy named Artie Nigro. At their first meeting, Arellata wasn't too impressed. He had a dry personality. He seemed like reserved, quiet, someone that thinks before he speaks. After the Christmas delivery, Bruno began sending Arellata to New York more often. Soon, Arellata got to know Artie Nigro pretty well, which was a lucky break for Arellata, because in 2002, the boss of the entire Genovese family in New York got sent to prison, and the family needed someone new to run things. So they promoted Artie Nigro. Nigro was now in charge of everything, including Springfield and Al Bruno, and he was feeling it. Once he got into that position, it was going to his head that now he was the boss. All of a sudden, he had a driver, a bodyguard. He was wearing a fedora. And you know how there are people, whenever there's a new boss, who come out of nowhere and weasel their way into power? In this case, the weasel's name was John Bologna. He would throw himself at Artie, you know, like just rain him with compliments and just right up his ass. And this didn't sit well with Arellata. My first instincts was the guy's no good. You know, he had dark sunglasses, a beard, big guy. He looked like a sleazebag type. But Bologna's compliments worked. Artie Nigro, the new boss, made Bologna part of his inner circle. Bologna began playing the roles of right-hand man, advisor, and in the case of Springfield, ambassador. Artie Nigro instructed Bologna to visit Springfield every weekend. First, it was to collect a debt from someone nearby. Then, it was to deliver messages that couldn't be said over the phone. And finally, it was simply to observe the Springfield Mafia and see how Al Bruno was running the show. And whenever Bologna visited, Arellata was often stuck with the job of showing him a good time. He came up with a cruel guys. Like, you know, I got along good. We all had a fun time when we went out. For me, it was just another night out, another good time, another, you know, and that's how it started off. And there was one particular spot that became Bologna's favorite. And he was uh, demented when it came to woman. When he saw the Mardi Gras, he was like a kid in a candy shop. The Mardi Gras strip club in Springfield has been around for decades and fancies itself as a premier destination, as you can tell from this recent ad. Whether you're looking for the perfect location for a bachelor party, birthday, or just a guy's night out, you will get a once-in-a-lifetime experience at the Mardi Gras Club. It's a block-size strip club, four floors, but it's huge. We have everything you desire to let you have fun, relax, and unwind. It seemed like every time John Bologna came to Springfield, he'd wind up at the Mardi Gras. The first time I laid eyes on Bologna, that was it, the Mardi Gras. Officer Murphy again. And there he is, over at the table with these guys. And I know the guy's with him. And I'm like, 
are you kidding me? That was my first. He's got the sunglasses on. I'm like, look at this Jamal. Describe what JB looked like physically for us. I would put him like mid-60s, big giant boiler, like a, a big gut. He literally like would wear these shirts with these like wild floral patterns on them. And it'd be 11 o'clock at night in a dark nightclub. And this dude would have on these sunglasses, smoking a big giant cigar. It was just crazy. But after a few visits, Bologna wasn't just visiting the Mardi Gras for entertainment. Here's Aralata. He was posting up right up by the front door. And what he was doing was counting people coming in. So he was clocking the place for a few weeks. Bologna used that number to calculate how much money the club was making off the door each night. Apparently, it was a lot. At least that's what he told his boss, Artie Nigro. He was poisoning Artie's head. We had gold up here. So he was trying to direct everything from here to New York so Artie could have gold. John would say, if you're the boss and Springfield's a faction, well, this all belongs to you. Bologna wanted to endear himself to his fledgling boss. And in the mob world, you do that by making him money. So Bologna gave his boss a suggestion. My impression was he went back to New York and he said, like, this is like Shangri-La up there. We got to get some of this money coming back to New York. They need to be taxed. Taxed, as in forced to pay a monthly tribute to the boss of the Genovese crime family. And Artie Nigro agreed. He was the boss. The Springfield rackets were his rackets, and they should pay tribute. So he instructed John Bologna to extort more Springfield businesses, not just the Mardi Gras, but every mob-adjacent business in the city, including one of Aralata's partners. So John sees him, and he wanted to shake him down. He goes, who's that? I go, that's my partner in the club. He goes, tell him to give you 500 a week. I go, I'm not telling him to give me 500 a week. I go, he's my friend. He goes, you got no friends. All your friends are down in New York. Pretty soon, even the police were hearing about Bologna. The few sources we had, um, the alarm bells went off. I mean, extortion payments went through the roof. Some of Bologna's extortion victims were also police informants. Everybody was abuzz about this guy. We were getting inquiries like, are you guys aware of this? Almost like kind of tattling on, you guys got to get rid of this guy because he's rocking the boat up here. He's destroying, you know, the Shangri-La system that's been in place, if you will. But no one was more upset by the extortions than the Springfield mob boss, Al Bruno. Springfield was his city. Bologna was just an unwanted visitor from New York doing things behind the Springfield boss's back. Bruno was getting upset. The conflict reached a boiling point over the Mardi Gras strip club. The club was already paying a small monthly tribute to Bruno. Bologna wanted to divert the payments to go straight to New York. Plus, he wanted double the money. Bruno wasn't having it. One day, Bruno decided that he and Aralata needed to meet with the Mardi Gras owner to settle things. Bruno told the guy that he was the boss of Springfield and that any demands from Bologna should be ignored. The owner was skeptical. Well, how can you protect me when John Bologna comes up and he says, I have to pay him $1,500 a week. Who do I listen to? Then Bruno turned to Aralata and said, Tell him who the boss is and tell him who to listen to. With Bruno standing right next to him, what's Aralata going to say? Bruno's the boss. Yes, listen to Bruno. Then on the weekends, Bologna would bring Aralata back to the Mardi Gras and would tell the owner the opposite. 
listen, I'm direct with the boss down in New York, and the New York boss told me, you pay $1,500 a week. Tell him, Anthony. Tell him. Tell him who. So I'm like, yeah, he's with the boss down in New York. So I'm in the middle. In the end, the Mardi Gras owner did pay a higher tribute. But Bologna didn't like that Bruno stood in his way. And he made his feelings known to Artie Nigro. John Bologna was telling him all bad things. Bruno did this. Bruno did that. Bruno's making a ton of money. He should be giving it to you. So that's what really started souring Artie against Bruno. Artie Nigro came up with a plan to undermine Bruno and reassert his dominance. He could weaken Bruno by poaching his underlings, convince them to shift their loyalty away from Bruno and over to him. He started with Aralata. So that's when I started getting closer to Artie. So how often would you come down to New York around this phase and meet directly with Artie? Did you start doing that more? I would say once, once a week, once every two weeks. On your own, you're meeting with Artie? Yeah. At one of these meetings, Artie Nigro gave an order that was a bit of a shock. A guy in a union that Nigro controlled was giving him a problem. So he ordered Aralata to handle it. I asked him, what do you want to do with this guy? And that's when he said, kill him. Aralata had never killed anyone before, and he couldn't know it at the time, but this assignment would set off a cascade of events that would strain his loyalty to his boss, Al Bruno, and throw the Springfield mob into chaos, eventually setting him on a collision course with my office in the Southern District of New York, where we'd try to get him to do something that you'd never imagine a hardcore mobster like Anthony Aralata would do. Flip. He said, they're going to want bodies. I said, okay, well, I, I, know, I know about bodies. Next time on Up Against the Mob. The first shot, the window shattered, and, you know, we're just shooting, 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 shooting. You know, it just didn't seem feasible that he's just shot in some random act of uh, street violence. Well, he was scared. He knew he was losing power. To get a made sworn member of the Genovese family to cooperate, this is just flipping wild. For more wild stories about the Springfield Mafia and the inside scoop on how prosecutors go up against the mob, become a member of Cafe Insider. For a limited time, you can get 40% off on your first year of annual membership. Head to cafe.com slash mob and get access to all exclusive cafe content. That's cafe.com slash mob. Special thanks to the operations team at New England Public Media's Springfield Studios. Bart Rankin, Kara Foster, Betsy Cordes, and Mariah Eggleston. Up Against the Mob is a production of Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Matthew Billy is the senior producer and writer. Adam Waller and Noah Azalai are the producers. Isaac Kestenbaum is our editor. Lissa Soep is our story consultant. This episode was mixed and sound designed by David Tadashur. Original score composed by Nat Wiener. Tamara Sepper and Art Chung are the executive producers. I'm Ellie Honig. If you enjoyed this episode, hit follow in your listening app. You can also write a review and let us know what you thought of the show. Thanks for listening. Support for this episode has come from eBay. 
You know real when you feel it. And with eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you don't have to wonder. You know that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo will be checked by experts and verified authentic. Maybe it's a designer handbag, sneakers that pop, jewelry that shines as bright as you do. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts.